Hello, sisters. Welcome to the table. You're listening to the Adorno Podcast, and I'm your host, Julie Charles. One of the great joys of the Christian life is that we experience a change, a new life in Christ, and it is something that Jesus tells us to go out and tell the world about. But what exactly do we say? In 1 Peter 3, Peter is telling believers to be prepared to make a defense for the reason for the hope within you. So I want to talk to you today about being prepared to make that defense. As a bit of background, the book of 1 and 2 Peter was written by Jesus' disciple Peter, who became an apostle and who was writing this letter to first century Christians in various areas around Asia. At the time of Peter's writing, Rome was the ruling authority over the land, and they were persecuting Christians for their belief that there was no other God but the one true living God, and for their declaration that Jesus is Lord. Daily, these people were faced with hardship, strife, capture, and possible death for simply calling themselves followers of Christ. It is with this as a backdrop that we look at Peter's words from 1 Peter 3.13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These first century Christians that Peter was addressing specifically would more than likely know what it was to suffer. There were trumped up charges brought against them by Rome that they would most likely be required to answer for and possibly still die for. One such charge was cannibalism. There were rumors circulating that these nefarious Christians were meeting together, in secret, and eating human flesh and drinking human blood. What was misunderstood was that the Christians were partaking in what we call communion. They were not actually eating flesh and drinking blood, but those were the words used, misunderstanding happened, rumors circulated, and now they were being sought out, questioned, and killed for a misunderstanding. At any given time, they could be questioned. In the marketplace, on the street, when neighbors came for that cup of sugar. At any point in time, whether as a trap or out of a legitimate curiosity, people were probably going to be asking these Christ followers why they were different, why they behaved differently, what it was that was different about them. And Peter was telling them that when, not if, but when they were questioned, they needed to be prepared. He does not tell them that they have to have a really great answer because great answers would save their lives. He doesn't say that they needed to have polished words and perfect answers, but he does say that they needed to have an answer. Peter actually failed at this test the first time he was asked for a testimony. From John's Gospel, chapter 18, we learn, after Jesus was crucified by the Romans, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. 
Then a little while later, in verse 25, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This directive isn't coming from a man who is giving hollow words. These words are almost like a warning, a been-there-done-that cautionary tale, a loving older brother giving advice. These Christians may have known about Peter's mistake, so it may have been easier for them to accept, knowing that, in a way, Peter was saying, Don't make the same mistake I did. I was asked. I panicked. I denied him, just like he said I would, and it was horrible. Don't be like me. Have a defense. Have an answer. Think of it beforehand so that when you're in the moment, you don't panic like I did and end up denying him. In another way, they were also going to have to know what was truth and have an answer for their hope because they were going to encounter their share of false teachers and false doctrines. They had to know what it was the Bible says to be able to spot the heretical stances of others. Perhaps you've heard the object lesson before, but when people were being trained to spot counterfeit money, they didn't look at the fakes. They studied the real thing in order to know what the real thing looked like and the counterfeit would stand out. That's the thought here. They needed to know what the Word of God said. They had to study the scriptures to know the real so that they could call out the fakes. On a personal note, This is the verse that the Holy Spirit used to convict my heart that I did not have an answer or defense that was my own. It was sometime after I had had my first baby when the thought came to me that I was to train her in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Dread fell upon my heart and mind when I realized I could no more tell her for the reason for the hope within me than I could a stranger, and yet that is what we are instructed to do here. Further still, How was I to participate in Jesus' calling to go and make disciples, teaching them anything, when I didn't have an answer for myself and wasn't really a disciple myself? Sure, I had the churchy answers, but they weren't my answers. Now, this is a little off topic, but I think it's important for instances like this. What I experienced in this wee tale of mine that I'm telling you about was a conviction from the Holy Spirit to be doing what I was made to do not a condemnation that I'll never be good enough or I need to be doing more. I think sometimes those two things get confused, and I sometimes hear from well-meaning people that I need to not be so hard on myself. If I ever come across on one hand self-righteously or on the other hand self-deprecatingly, please know that that's not my intent. I want to be real and honest, and I want the Spirit to be showing me the things that are not of Him. One of the truths that God made real for me was the verse from Romans 8, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A 15th century soldier-turned-monk, Ignatius of Loyola, wrote on discerning of the spirits, and in that writing he talks about learning the marks and characteristics of what he calls consolation and desolation, which I would call conviction and condemnation. In an attempt to boil down Ignatius's words, he said that the voice of God never condemns. God does not speak in a way that crushes our spirit or belittles our belief. 
Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He is identified as a thief who only comes to kill and destroy. God may convict, but never condemn. A wonderful passage to this end is Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is not the voice of condemnation. In addition, the Lord's voice tends to be invitational. Because he is for us, he delights to be with us. As such, when he speaks, he tends to invite. When Satan speaks, we tend to feel the pressure that we need to come through. We're not good enough, or it's all on us. I just wanted to add that in case anyone walks away from this feeling like they've never, they'll never be good enough, never do enough, never be enough. The hard truth is, you won't be. But Jesus is. Jesus called Peter the rock before Peter was ever steadfast, stable, or mature. It was Jesus in him that made him steadfast and mature. Jesus is the rock, and it is his life that is in us that we cling to, that does what we can't, that readjusts our eyes and heart when it's slipped to focus on the things of the world. It is his arms that will hold us fast, and his spirit that reminds us whose we are and what we are to be doing. Now, back to our verses. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The first thing I had to do was confront all the excuses I had for not having an answer for myself that was my own. The first excuse was that I would have to tell them my testimony, my story of how I came to Christ, thinking that that was going to be what they needed. I don't have a dramatic conversion story. I have a faithful story. I have turning points and events that launched me forward in growth, but I don't have the Paul on the road to Emmaus, bright light, blinded and then could see story. I thought I needed one. At youth rallies and testimony times, I heard person after person talk about how they were at their absolute lowest point ever, and then God just grabbed them and they were dramatically changed. I do not have that story. I thought I had to. In no uncertain terms, let me tell you that your life is not the gospel. It's not about you. Your story is not the thing people need to hear to know Christ. They need to hear Christ. You can use your story to point to Christ, but the point of your story is to point to Christ, not you. The second excuse I had was that I was taught how to share the gospel, but it was totally ringing false to me. At the time, I couldn't tell you why, but those tips and tricks for telling people about Jesus rubbed me the wrong way. Perhaps you've heard some of them as well. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. On the surface, it seems true. But as Paul Washer pointed out, can you imagine walking up to an American and saying that? God loves me? Well, great, because I love me too. And he has a wonderful plan for me. I have a wonderful plan for my life too. Gospel presentations, those tips and tricks that I'd learned were so man-centered that it was like putting the cherry on top of an already really great life. I could really live my best life now. That is not what the Bible says at all. 
It says that we are sinners, an offense to God with his wrath on us as a blanket. The third excuse was that I didn't feel saved. I was convinced that I was supposed to feel something, anything, that would inform me of my salvation, and I would then, in turn, tell people of this great hope within me. The truth is, our feelings, our faith isn't based on feelings. Feelings are fickle. They can turn at any moment. Our feelings aren't the truth. There were other reasons, or rather excuses, but the fact remained that this was the word of God, and God said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So I had to sort it out. Telling anyone, at any time, and in any place about God needs to start with the nature of God, not man. If we are to help people see their need for a Savior, to explain to them the sin that has them in bondage, we have to start with the nature of holy God that has a holy standard that we, in our sin, cannot ever achieve or live up to on our own. We are powerless to save ourselves because of who God is. We have to tell them who God is. That means we have to know for ourselves. Could I do that? No. No, I couldn't. And that was the real reason that I didn't have an answer for the hope that was in me. I knew about God, but I didn't truly know the God I claimed to serve. So how can I know God? The first and best place to start is your Bible. If you do not have a Bible or the means to get one, please contact me and you will have a Bible. As you're reading and studying it, pray. Talk to God. There aren't certain words you must use. Tell him everything. Go about your day in conversation with him. But don't forget to listen as well. Another good place to look for tangible physical resources about who God is, is apologetics. The word used in our passage is defense, and the Greek word for defense is apologia, or in English, apologetic. Look at good Bible-based apologetic resources. Those who have been Christ followers for some time, who have a defense, we need to come alongside newer Christians to help them out, not in a spirit of arrogance to put down another for their ignorance, but as sisters lifting each other up. A very important aspect to all of this, if you know God and have a defense or a reason for the hope within you, is that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. We are to never beat people with the Word of God. We will undermine the truth of what we speak if we do it in a manner that is harsh. And this is coming from a man who chopped off a guy's ear in defense of Jesus. We see just how much God has changed Peter. Proverbs 15 tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 2 Timothy 2 says that the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The truth of the gospel is going to anger the world enough because the world is opposed to truth. Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Jesus told us that you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
My encouragement to you today, sisters, is to be prepared with a defense for the reason for the hope that is within you. Deliver that defense in gentleness and respect, expecting to be hated and reviled and maybe even suffer for it. But stand firm and declare, Jesus is Lord. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like to pass along, or if there is a specific topic that you'd like us to talk about, or if you'd like a written copy of any of the podcasts, please email us at adornopodcast at gmail.com. Join us next time at the table.